Well, good morning, church. Go ahead and take your seats. I am so glad to be with you. Uh, Been on the road these last couple of weeks uh, with Jesse. Uh, our 11-year-old and I spent the last couple of weeks in Africa, had a blast. God's doing amazing things there. We were with uh, our Liberty community in Manzini, but we were in five cities in eight days across Southern Africa, Durban and Cape Town and George and Johannesburg with pastors and leaders, and it was just an amazing time. God is doing great things. I've got a couple of stories to tell actually from that uh, trip in my message today, but who came ready for the Word of God? We're glad that you're joining us on Liberty Live too um, this morning and just glad to be in the house of God. I, uh, I want to welcome, right at the kickoff of the message here, I want to welcome our Manzini community who are going to be joining us uh, via the video. Let's just send some love. You guys are very loved and we're just so excited by what God is doing there and across the world. It's a pretty amazing thing. One family, amen. Just a growing global family of local church communities is what we are. But my message today, I want to get right to it, is simply called All the Believers. If you're taking notes today, and you might want to, uh, the message is simply called All the Believers. And the context of this, I'm going to take us back to the start. We're going to go back to uh, the book of Acts, chapter 2, which actually was the start of our church, too. It was the start of the church. But when Andy and I, and at the time our three little kids, age four, two, and one, arrived in New York City knowing hardly a soul, and we gathered famously around a picnic table in Central Park, this is where we went as a church. How do we do this? What is the church meant to look like? God, what is it that you desire to build in the midst of the city? We went to this very passage here in Acts chapter 2, which is really the birth of the early church. The context here is, you know, Jesus, this is right after the Gospels, and Jesus ascended to heaven. He's promised the Holy Spirit, and at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes like tongues of fire. You know, people are empowered uh, to be His witnesses, not only in Jerusalem, but in Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And we see the the very next thing that happens is a catalyst. It's the birth of the early church. And in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, this is what it says. It says, they devoted themselves. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. What you're getting here is a description of what the church, in its essence, in purity, is really all about teaching and fellowship, breaking of bread and prayer. Verse 33, and everyone, you're gonna see how inclusive these verses are. Everyone, it says, was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And here's where we get the title from today. Verse 44, all the believers, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need, And every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. There's this incredible infectious, kind of viral growth that's happening. God is adding literally daily to their number those who are being saved. But the essence of the church in its purest form is described here in such beauty. This is the birth of the early church. It's pure. It's uncomplicated. 
It's breathtaking taking in, its, in its unity and in its simplicity. But the phrase that really grabbed my attention as I was reading this just recently was all the believers. All the believers. Let's think about that for a minute. Everything that's described here was impacting everyone, was involving everyone. It was 100% engagement in the early church. No spectators, all participators. That's the way the church was designed to be. I also love the phrase that says, they devoted themselves. They devoted themselves. In other words, nobody, there didn't seem like there was anybody cracking the whip, anybody trying to stir everybody up. It didn't seem like there was a whole lot of external motivation needed. The Holy Spirit, the empowerment of God inside of them. This fresh fire of what God was doing in their midst caused them to devote themselves. They were devoted. They devoted themselves, it says, to all of these amazing things, to teaching and, and to fellowship. By the way, you notice it's both those things. It's teaching and fellowship. Fellowship, so, you know, it's kind of a word that's maybe fallen out of fashion a little bit, but you know, fellowship, call it community, call it doing life together, was a part of the fabric of the church. It wasn't just the teaching. It wasn't just the teaching, which is why maybe in our modern context, we gotta be so careful because there's many different ways you can get the teaching these days, right? But miss the fellowship. There's, there's many, a, a Christian who loves God, but has decided that their idea of church is to stay in their PJs and listen to Joel Osteen. I love Joel. I love Joyce Meyer, Stephen Furtick. Praise God that we live in a day when these incredible preachers are just right at the click of a button, right? We're, we're so blessed and resourced, but let's, let's take that and, let's never forget it was teaching and, and fellowship. <laughs> I can't, you know, fellowship is something I can't just do from home, amen? And man, amen to Liberty Live. I'm glad you're watching right now. I'm so glad that we have Liberty Live because, you know, again and again and again, firstly, we're in a context like New York, a global family, got people traveling, you wanna stay connected when they're away. How often do we hear stories of people saying, hey, I watched online for a little while and then I came, checked it out in person, amen. But wouldn't it be a pity if 10 years from now, it was still people's only experience was to watch online, to get to maybe receive teaching, but to never experience, I think you're missing out. These are some pretty awesome people, right? In each of our different communities, awesome people. We, there's something about fellowship that's important to the design of God's church. It said in verse 44, you can tell because it says all the believers were what? Together, had everything in white in common. So the church, as it's designed to be, this thing of following Jesus involves, hello, thriving in community. We talk about it all the time if we wanna make a difference, right? It's, all to, it's together. This is, by definition, relational. It's a community. I like that it, it, it defines here that they gathered in the temple courts and in homes. There's a rhythm in that. The, the temple court, in a sense, in a modern context, is kind of what we're doing here today on a Sunday. But then there's this thing of gathering in homes as well. That was part of our fabric as a church right from the beginning. We, we call them community groups. And uh, you know they meet in three different seasons across the year, different nights of the week, even mornings, and in homes and cafes. And you know, here's a good report. This season we're in right now for our community groups, just launched only weeks ago, has over 90% of our average Sunday attendance across all of our communities are also in groups. That's something we ought to praise God for, amen? Over 90%. Of those experiencing what's happening here on any given Sunday, also experiencing life-giving, discipleship, relationship, fellowship, as the Bible puts it, and community. Breaking bread. Any fans of breaking bread in the place? Hello. <laughs> Mention gets two mentions in here. That's good for me. I don't know if you ever read that book. I think it was Chapman that wrote the five love languages, you know, words of affirmation and physical touch. And, you know, 
I'm like, there should have been six. I'm going to write a new edition because in my humble opinion, food is the sixth love language. Can I get an amen, anybody in this place? Come on. Food is my love language. But anyway, breaking bread. I like that it gets multiple mentions here in the birth of the early church. Amen to food. But you know, if we push in a little deeper, there's kind of, there's different ways of understanding this. That phrase breaking bread can mean all at once meals and it also means communion. There was this sort of rich celebration of what communion was intended to be. In fact, when Jesus did the first communion before his, his death on the cross, he said, you know, basically as often as you gather, do this in remembrance of me. There was this thought that communion would be as common as having a meal. It's actually sort of a pity. It took three centuries for communion to become something that was institutionalized. And under Emperor Constantine, then the decision was, well, you know, communion will just be done at church. And we won't, do, we won't do a meal anymore. It'll just be emblems. And there's nothing wrong with emblems, and we do it that way as a church, but we're missing out if we think communion was relegated for just a moment with a symbol in the church. No, communion, this idea of breaking bread is supposed to be a way of life for us as believers. I think the thing that struck me the most about this passage was the early church was not dominated by spectators. It's too easy for it to go that way today, Amen. Couple of people doing the ministry, everybody else clapping, cheering, attending, spectating, supporting. But no, 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 the early church was all about participators. And so today, you know, if you're taking notes, I, I, I wanna give you four thoughts I've been wrestling with as, I, as I've thought about and prayed through this idea of what it would be like to pioneer here today, 2019, in the cities that God has called us to as a church, the kind of place where it would be said of us, all the believers, amen? So the first, first thought this morning is this, is we are the church. We are the church. If we're gonna get back to the essence of the church and what God has designed us to be, we kind of need to strip back some layers of things that got added along the way. I heard somebody describe it this way recently when they were talking about sort of theology and really defining even what is a church, you know, because there's debate about even things like that still today. And they made the comment that over the years, we've added so many things to the essence of what God intended or mandated in the beginning that it's almost like buying an old house where you gotta, if you wanna get back to the beautiful hardwood that was underneath, you gotta strip back layers and layers of paint and all of these things, but underneath is something beautiful. I, that's a little bit of what I'm trying to do this morning is strip back some of those extra things that we've added along the way. And one of the things that I've noticed about this idea of the church, church seems like such a common word around here, that you would assume we're all on the same page of what we mean when we say it, but sadly, that's not the case. And actually, I wanna show you how something as simple as a translation choice has meant that when we say church today, maybe not as much within so-called these four walls, but if you said to people out there, if you use the word church in our generation, a lot of times what people are gonna be thinking of is not at all what God had in mind for the church. So I'll give you an example from Matthew 16, verse 18. The context here is Jesus has asked his disciples, who do people say I am? And Peter has famously answered, everybody's given their different answers. He said, you are the Christ, the Messiah, you're the son of the living God. And Jesus says, well done to him. And this is what he says. He says, I tell you that you are Peter. He gives him a new name. And on this rock, I will build my church. The word here, the Greek word which we're getting translated here is ecclesia. On this rock, 
This is a play on words that Jesus is making here too. Rock was, Peter meant like little rock. So in a way, Jesus is saying, you're gonna help build the church, but maybe the bigger context here is on this kind of a revelation, you've just revealed who I am. I'm revealing now who you are. You are Peter. And on revelation, I'm gonna build my ecclesia and the gates of Hades or hell will not overcome it. Now, when we say church, most people in the Western world think building. And that's a great shame. That word ecclesia here is used 118 times in the New Testament. 118 times. And 115 times when they translated this, really the the English language, the King James Version, when they translated this into English, they made the choice to use the word church. 115 of the 118 times. And the word assembly, the other three times. Then you think, this is a what, big deal, Paul. Why does this matter? It kind of matters because it shifted everything about how the Western world has thought about the church. Most theo- theologians would agree that choice was profoundly unhelpful. Let me show you first what ecclesia means and you'll see why it's such a big deal how far we've strayed from God's idea of church. Ecclesia, maybe we can put it up on the screen here for a minute. I'm not gonna read it all in detail, but look, it says ecclesia. It's a gathering of citizens, an assembly of the people, an assembly of the Israelites, any gathering or throng of men assembled. Next slide. In the Christian sense, it's Christians gathered for worship, a company of Christians. Okay, next one. To those anywhere in a city united in one body, the whole body of Christians, the assembly of faithful Christians, you get it. Is there anything about this that says building to you? Nothing at all about this says building. When Jesus says, I will build my ecclesia, he was talking about, you could, it would be much better translated gathering or assembly or fellowship or community. Any of these things would have been a better choice than the choice that they made. Was Jesus announcing a capital campaign? I will build my buildings and the gates of hell will not prevail against my buildings. Is that what he was talking about in that moment? What a great pity that the English translators used a word church. Now, the word church today is kind of beautiful and special to us, but it's helpful to know its origin is less helpful. (laughs) The word church is sort of an anglicized, an English version of two words. There was a a German word, Kirk, and there was a a Gaelic, Scottish word, Sirk, and both of them were kind of anglicized to church. They, They represented physical places of worship. Kirk was a building, the circle, the circle where we get circle or circus from, it's ironic, uh, <laughs> were physical places of worship, largely pagan places of worship in a circular form. And they chose that word to, 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 to replace this idea of assembly or gathering. So little wonder today, when that's kind of in the roots of the word church, even though we've tried to shift the meaning and redefine it for people, it started with this idea of a physical place. And so in a moment, just like that, we shifted from a people to a place with a word choice. Nothing wrong with having buildings. Let me be really clear. Amen to having buildings. But what's ironic about buildings is they in and of themselves, firstly, are not the church and don't necessarily even build the church themselves. All at once, the church is growing the fastest on the planet in places where the church is persecuted and can't even gather in buildings, let alone own them. Ironically, almost the opposite of that, some of the most beautiful so-called church buildings, structures, cathedrals owned by religious organizations around the world are the ones devoid of worship and gathering that have been relegated to landmarks and tourist attractions. And so 
There is no direct correlation between the owning of buildings and the building of the church. Having said that, Manzini watching this video, while I was there, we were praying, believing that we could either buy the building they're in now or buy a piece of land and secure their future. Amen to stakes in the ground and to ownership. But, you know, let's just never imagine that the church is a building. Because so, in that sense, we don't even really, we talk about, I'm gonna go to church. And, and I don't wanna split hairs. But in a sense, we don't go to church, we are the church. Now, there's going involved in the gathering, so amen to that. I'm not advocating, don't go. What I'm saying is, let's just not just imagine that church is what we do here on Sunday in a particular place. Goodness, over the years, if you wanna talk about buildings, we've used the Atheist Society of New York. <laughs> we've gathered in movie theaters and schools and you name it. I mean, any building can be a venue, a place for the presence of God, amen. Be filled with these praises in Manzini. The, the venue we had there was a restaurant before us and it's no less the house of God today than it would be if it had a church and a steeple, amen. The church is a people, not a place. The church is a body, not a building. The church is a movement, not a monument. People, not a place. A body, not a building, a movement, not a monument. Number two. So firstly, we have to understand we are the church. Secondly, I, I believe it's important to be reminded we are all priests. This might be new or even a little uncomfortable for some of us this morning, and that's good if it is. We are all priests. And I want to show it to you in the Scripture. First Peter chapter 2. Verses one to five, it says, therefore rid yourselves of all malice and deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander of every kind. And like newborn babies, crave spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. And now that you have tasted that the Lord is good as you come to him, the living stone rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also like living stones are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now jump down to verse nine. It says, you, this is speaking of you this morning, church, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You're a royal priesthood. Once you were not a people, now you are a people of God. Once you had not received mercy, now you have received mercy. I give you the verses either side of this description of you as a royal priesthood to make sure that none of us imagine this is just for a special chosen few. Gee, you know, this, the, the writer here is setting up the idea that even those who he says, you know, spiritual babies, those requiring spiritual milk, he goes on to say, you, chosen, you, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. You're part of the priesthood. That's good news. You're part of the priesthood. And it's, it's understandable why many of us would feel unqualified for that. Amen. If we've got any self-awareness or humility at all, many of us would feel like, whoa, 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 whoa. I don't know if I'm ready for that. To be a priest, part of the priesthood. You know, Emperor Constantine, right around 320, 330 AD, made Christianity the state religion of the Roman Empire. To that point in time, the church had been persecuted on the run and yet growing virally. And what's sad about that, although it might have seemed like a win for the church at the time, what came into the church was sort of an institutionalization. 
institutionalizing power. The church became highly politicized. It became about clergy and laity, priests and so-called commoners. And you know, for a long time, that line of thinking meant that they didn't even bother to translate the Bible into a language that people could read. Because it was assumed that only the priests, which they had relegated to a chosen few, would even need to know the Word of God or be able to hear from God. They would hear from God and tell the people what they needed to do and say. So it took Martin Luther in the 16th century to confront this, usher in what we ended up calling the Reformation and the birth of the modern Protestant church came from confronting this breakdown in understanding. Martin Luther wrote this in the epistles of St. Peter and St. Jude. He said, this word priest should be as common as the word Christian. Well, we still got a ways to go on that one, right? Centuries later, we still got a ways to go. Many of us would be comfortable to call ourselves Christians. But how many of us in this place would say, I'm a priest? That might be a little further, amen? Dr. Art Lindsley in his book, uh, Unpacking the Priesthood of All Believers, he said, when Luther referred to the priesthood of all believers, he was maintaining that the plowboy and the milkmaid could do priestly work. In fact, their plowing and milking was priestly work. There was no hierarchy where the priesthood was a vocation and milking the cow was not. Both were tasks God called his followers to do, each according to their gifts, and this has enormous implications for how Christians live their daily lives. He goes on to make the point that four of the things that we associate in the Old Testament, so before Jesus, the Old Covenant, that we associate with the priest in the sense of the, the selected priest from amongst the Levites, that these are now the priesthood of all believers, these become our functions. Firstly, the privilege of direct access to God is ours. Ephesians 3.12 says we have boldness and confident access in, through faith in Him. Jesus is, when, when He died on the cross, if you know the story, the veil in the temple was torn in two. Symbolic of the separation of the presence of God from the people. And only before that, the, the high priest on special occasions could access the very presence of God, the Holy of Holies. That veil was torn in two, symbolizing that we all now have direct access to the presence of God. There is no one on this earth, listen, there is no one on this earth that has a different clearance level than you to the presence of God. If there was an access pass that you have, all of us have all access written on our pass. You have access to the presence of God. Secondly, the privilege of, of spiritual sacrifice. One of the things that the priests were known for in the Old Testament was they administrated the sacrifices. People would bring literal, physical sacrifices, grain and animals and so on. And Jesus was our sacrifice once and for all. But now it says in 1 Peter 2.5, it says we're a holy priesthood. It says to offer up spiritual sacrifices, wholly acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So now you offer sacrifices, amen? Because you're a priesthood. Thirdly, the responsibility of a prophetic role becomes ours. In the Old Testament, the prophetic came through the priest. Again, a selected few. Now, all of us walking as a royal priesthood, it says in 1 Peter 2.9 that it's ours to declare the wonderful deeds of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Amen? So we have a prophetic role. And fourthly, the responsibility to be agents of reconciliation is ours. The priest was a mediator between God and man and frankly, oftentimes between man and each other. The, the, the priest was a reconciler, but now that's all of us. You are a priest. <laughs> it says all this in 2 Corinthians 5.18. All this is from God, who's reconciled us to himself through Christ and has what? Given us the ministry of reconciliation. So what was once the domain of a handful of 
Priests in the Old Testament is now the ministry of every believer. It's what we call the priesthood of all believers. Number three. Third thing I think we need to get a handle on is that we all have a ministry. If this is going to be about all the believers, we've got to realize that we are the church. We've got to understand that we are all priests. And we've got to thirdly realize that we all have a ministry. Ephesians 4 is an amazing, powerful chapter, and it speaks to kind of two levels of our calling, what you could call our, our universal calling and our personal calling, or our primary and secondary calling. You know, there are some things that are common to us all. And then there are, there's, there are also callings that are on us uniquely, that we are uniquely gifted for. And Ephesians 4 speaks to the tension that's within both of these primary and secondary callings. It says in Ephesians 4, verse 1 in the New Living, it says, Therefore I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead, lead a life worthy of your calling. For you've been called by God. Always be humble and gentle, patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together in peace. For listen, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you've been called to one glorious hope for the future. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, in all, and living through all. So this is speaking to the universal calling, what we have in common. But then listen to the distinction, the, the both and tension here. It says, however, verse seven, he has given each one of us a special gift. That word gift can also be translated literally grace. He's given to each a special grace or gift through the generosity of Christ. Now, jump a couple of verses to verse 11. He explains what they are. These are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and pastors and teachers, and their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work. Who does the work? God's people. It's about all the believers, amen? The priesthood of all believers to equip His people to do the work and build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come to such unity in our faith and knowledge in God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full and complete standard of Christ. What a, what a contrast that is to the idea of clergy and laity where we would imagine you know, that just a few people would do the work and everybody else would spectate or watch on. No, no, it seems to me that the, in fact, the New King James says it this way. It says that the gifts are given for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry. Do you know what minister, to minister means to meet a need? So good news, church, you have a ministry. Just turn to the person next to you and say, congratulations, you have a ministry. In fact, turn to the person on the other side and say, congratulations, you're a priest. This might be news for some of us this morning, amen? To meet a need, you have a ministry. Welcome to the ministry, everybody. So this is why we as a church believe in things like, like visionaries, for instance, which is a ministry we have uh, in New York and in St. Pete to the business community of our church. Because I don't believe that God looks at our life like there's some separation between the so-called secular and the sacred. No, all of life. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it as unto the Lord. Amen. So all of life is a ministry as unto Him. That's why it's so important. In May, we'll be teaching a series across the church on faith and work because those things are not separated. Amen. Our Sunday ought to inform our Monday and our Monday ought to inform our Sunday. It's all of life. So to me, this is about shifting the conversation, the unspoken, subtle conversation of the church from, from saying to people, 
we can do it, you can help. To the conversation of the church being, you can do it, we can help. Mobilizing the masses for the work of the ministry to meet a need, a royal priesthood, mobilize to every corner of society, amen? Let me give you one more this morning. We are one body. We are one body. We have a ministry. We all have a ministry, but also we are one body. I wanna finish out this passage in Ephesians 4 that I've been reading Pick up right after where we left off about the gifts being given for equipping the the people to do the work of the ministry. And it says, verse 14, then we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind of new teaching. We won't be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. Instead, we will speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ. Now listen to this, Christ who is the head of his body, the church. Did you catch that? Christ, who is the head of his body, who's his body? His body is the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly as each part does its special work. It helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. Man, that's what I pray for the church, that last phrase, the church. I don't just mean Liberty Church, I mean the capital C church, the church of Jesus Christ in the earth. My prayer is that it would be healthy and growing and full of love, amen? Growing and healthy, full of love. That's a description of God's plan and God's best for us. And yet we have to realize that we are, we're a body. In fact, the, the NIV of that same verse, different translation says, from him, the whole body, verse 16, is joined and held together by every supporting ligament. And it grows and builds itself up in love, listen, as each part does its work. So if we just go with the analogy that that God's using here, that the the church, the body of Christ, of which he is the head, is, is is a body, then we understand that the body has different parts. And each of the different parts has a different form for a different function. Still one body. One body, one purpose, one head. Christ who is the head over all, amen? So there's a oneness and that's what, that's what the writer here is referring to earlier when he's saying one God, one baptism, amen? What, there's the oneness and yet there's at the same time, the both end is oneness of unity and yet different expressions. You need connection, so do I. We need connection to the body. Just like any physical part of your body is in trouble if it gets disconnected from the rest, amen? (laughs) It's all well and good. It has value in and of itself, but life is in its connection to the body as a whole. The growth and health in the body come as a result of each part doing its special work. That's why when we talk about things, by the way, we talk about our next steps area. We talk about making Liberty home or joining the team. We're inviting you to just be part of the body. Figure out what your part of the body is. Make your contribution and watch the whole thing be built up in love as each part does its work. Something beautiful about unity in the church, even in all the diversity. You know, with all those different expressions, that's what's so beautiful about the body, unity in diversity together. The the church kind of, the gathering functions. When it functions as it should, we see those things together, diversity and unity. I, I, um... In my travels the last few weeks, had the opportunity to meet a very special girl and hear her story. So I, I, when, on, in our travels, we went to the city of Durban in Southern Africa. And uh, 
met a pastor who oversees a great church there called Anthem in, uh, in Durban. And he told us the story on the night that we arrived of his daughter. They, on Christmas Eve, the Mungavans are pastors of the church. They were driving to their Christmas services on Christmas Eve when a uh, delivery motorcycle ran into their car. The driver was thrown through the window of the car and helmet first uh, impacted the head of their 13-year-old daughter. Uh, ambulances came and they rushed her to the hospital and she basically was given no hope at all. I mean, literally, I don't know if it was four doctors or six of you know, the, the top surgeons in the nation all gathered them together. They did a surgery to remove bone fragments from her brain, basically in order to give them enough time to say goodbye to her. And they told, they literally told her there's, there's just, there's no, there's no, there's no hope. You need to say goodbye. So this is Christmas Eve, for crying out loud. So he texts his friends, his pastor friends around the nation, all pastors of different churches, different denominations, different styles and flows, and a number of them on Christmas Eve with their own services and, of course, their own families to attend to, jumped on planes and flew to be at their hospital bedside, gathered around that room, and the Mungavans texted their friends saying, hey, let's just believe whatever happens here that she'll be fully alive. Either truly get a healing miracle or be fully alive in the presence of God and nowhere in between, fully alive. So all these pastors fly in to help them and Gavin say goodbye to their daughter because they've been given no hope. But miraculously, she lives through the night and the next morning they're like, okay, so what happens now? And they say, well, she probably will die today. If she lives a few more days, then the best hope you have is that she's gonna be in a vegetative state, long-term, unconscious, unable to move or really to do anything. And... um. They just continued to pray and to press into the presence of God. Well, can I, can I show you? Can we put one of those photos up on the, on the screen? This story made national news. Actually, it, it spread to Europe as well. As this miraculous thing happened, she had an operation to, with almost no hope of saving her. In fact, this is how bad it is. The mortality rate is 90%. In other words, nine out of 10 people that have this surgery die on the operating table. But it was so desperate, there was no other possibility. They removed literally half of her skull. They put it inside her abdomen so that the bone wouldn't die. And that was the only chance, you know, with the brain swelling and all the different things going on, that there would be any chance that she could live. But I met her. In fact, I was there. Jesse and I happened to be at the pastor's home the day that they sent her home. Can we put up the other picture that I have? This was last weekend. She's one of the top ballet dancers in South Africa. So seven days, yeah, seven days after coming home from a surgery that literally took her skull and put it back on her head again. She was ballet dancing in the house of God, praising and worshiping Jesus. Can we praise God for that? Because He is a healer still today. And do you know what? This speaks to me so beautifully, other than just the most incredible, radical healing miracle that I have personally ever seen. I mean, just stunning, so stunning that all the doctors are confounded. I mean, they sent article after article of press, secular press saying, this is, there's no way to explain this. This is a miracle. But for me as a pastor, one of the most beautiful things was to watch the beauty of the body of Christ rallying together. When it wasn't about this church or that church, you'd expect their own church to pray. But what a beautiful thing when different pastors and different leaders and all, the, if one part of the body is hurting, we're all hurting. When one part of the body is celebrating, we are all celebrating. That, to me, is the spirit of all the believers. When we're in triumph and when we're in tragedy, we are one. Amen? We are one. We are one. That's my prayer for our church, is that we would be the sort of church 
where it's about all the believers, that we would all realise we are the church, that we have a ministry. We are a royal priesthood carrying the very presence of God. We are one body with one head that is Jesus Christ and a world to change. If we can just hold that revelation dear, amen, and press into His presence, what could that kind of a church, that kind of ecclesia, the gathering, the body of Christ, the community of God do to change the earth and the generations? I'd give my life to see that. I pray for you this morning. I'd love to have every head bowed and every eye closed. I wanna pray into that. And, and after I do, someone's gonna come and extend an invitation to us this morning to give our lives to Christ and to the one who died, that the church would be all that she could be. Father, I pray over Liberty Church, let us live with this kind of a revelation. Let us never reduce your church, Lord, to buildings and services, to an institution or an organization. We are the church. And amen to beautiful services, amen to our community's owning property in time. But Lord, let it never be a distraction from the mission, which is to build the ecclesia, the gathering, the community, the fellowship, a throng of all believers that would grab the attention of every person on this earth through our diversity, celebrated in unity because we are one body. You are alive, you heal, you raise the dead. I think of Kiara's story, God. What a God we serve. You have done great things. And God, I pray in our midst, a stunning, beautiful unity, a work of oneness, God, that would cause us to be a testimony in the earth, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.